Well, this is an exciting Sunday. It is nationally, it is Sanctity of Life Sunday, which gives us this wonderful opportunity to hear from one of our local ministry partners, CareNet of Puget Sound. It's just, they're just around the corner from us on Meridian. We've uh, been developing a deeper and deeper relationship with them over the years. And this morning we have Tracy Olson, who's going to come and share with us a little about the ministry, uh, what it is that they do, how you might be able to get involved so Tracy, please come on down. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming. Thank you all for having me this morning. My name is Tracy Olson, and I'm the director of CareNet's program called Healing Tide. I'm here today to talk about a few eight-letter words. The first one has the ability to explode like a special effects in a Rambo movie. This word will literally blow up the lives of women and men alike. It comes bursting from our lips with pure elation and terror all mixed together. It marks one's arrival at a new stepping stone in life. At the exact same time, it unhitches all your plans, goals, and careers. The word is pregnant. For most, pregnancy comes with the immediate realization of being totally unprepared. It screams the urgent need for intensive training and emergency call for a great deluge of needed materials and supplies. CareNet is specifically founded on the goals of making the birth of this blessed life a thoroughly wonderful experience. CareNet offers single parents and couples a great deal of savings on medical services, like professional pregnancy tests, ultrasounds, and STD testing, all free. Prenatal education, such as childbirth, education classes, and parenting classes, all free. Parenting support, access to parenting workshops, group classes, one-on-one mentoring, community referrals, and resources. And even a men's program. Because no matter what they tell you, ladies, your man is scared to death. It is apparent in that first micro-expression when the news actually gets from the ears to his brain. We hope this is just before the huge smile and burst of excitement. So men have access to one-on-one mentoring, small groups, and interest groups. In your local community, schools, and churches like this one, CareNet offers classes we like to call SMART program. This is uh, teaching the skills we like to call SMART love, empowering teens to make healthy relationship choices, SMART boundaries, teaching our children about consent and personal boundaries to keep them safe in a world we cannot control, SMART freedom, so they are aware of the rampant dangers of sex trafficking in our world today, SMART steps, so these teens can lead a natural, healthy life. Just by utilizing these gifts and programs, CareNet is offering points. Points redeemable for bottles, diapers, breast pumps, and a huge list of supplies. Baby furniture and preparedness items they are certain to need. All of this is free to the client with enough accumulated points. The more help they get, the more baby booty they get. It is a wonderful opportunity for these clients to stock up. Then there's another eight-letter word. A word birthed from desperation. 
fear, and darkness. A word standing alone in regret and shame. A word not spoken of, but in the shadows. A word that can hide within a soul, pulling it down and tearing at it for decades without any outward signs. This word is abortion. Karenette is a special division, has a special division of which I am a part of, Healing Tide. We bring the pain into the light. We expose the guilt and shame for the lie that it is. Through our eight-week Bible studies, weekend retreats, or one-on-ones, we provide women, men, and couples the guidance they need to find the healing that many don't even recognize they deserve. Karenet offers a path to a fresh start and to teach them how to receive forgiveness that they need not be earned because it is from our Lord and Savior Jesus. Being post-abortive, I remember sitting in church Sunday after Sunday thinking, what would they think of me if they knew I had an abortion? This thought tormented me for over 11 years before I realized that I need help for this deep, dark secret. And then it took me another nine years before I actually reached out for that help. It was my pastor who told me about the Healing Tide program that Karenette had to offer. I had no clue that anything existed like this for people like me. I am truly grateful for the freedom I have received, and now my desire is to share this experience and freedom with all post-abortive people. We also have a new extension of the Healing Tide Ministry for Pregnancy Loss through miscarriage, stillbirth, and even SIDS. It is not your fault. You can pit the shame down. If you know anyone who could benefit from these services, then please tell them about us. CareNet does a lot of things to preserve the sanctity of life, but we can no longer do all this alone. We have a great need for volunteers, for supplies, and for facilities. We could also use access to generous venues like this one to share about our services. People need to know there is help. There is a way through this. There is a path into the light. And then, finally, there is one other very painful eight-letter word. It is donation. CareNet is completely supported from people, uh, supported by donations from people in churches like this one. We desperately need every small one-time donation. We need it to fight the evil forces pushing abortion as if it were birth control. We must become just as well known as some of the other alternative so-called women's organizations. This is a real spiritual battle. I face it on a daily basis. Anyone can help. You don't need to be a counselor to help stem the loss, the tide of loss. You can donate baby clothes or even diapers and baby wipes. You can even donate your time and the power of your prayers. Prayer is a most important weapon. All are valuable and greatly needed. In a moment, I will be giving you a number you can text to donate, or I will have this little QR code which you can use with those fancy phones that are sitting in your laps right now. CareNet is here for those who are looking forward to their babies, as well as those who are not sure if they want their babies, for those who don't know how they can keep their babies, and for those who regret having lost their babies, whether to abortion, stillbirth, miscarriage, or SIDS. I urge you to earnestly pray and see how the Lord leads you with helping to preserve sanctity of human life. Babies 
mommies and daddies need people just like you. I will be at the table outside with answers, information, and a Get Involved sheet so you can sign up to help. As well as I'll have the QR code so you can text SOULS to 41444. And SOULS is spelled a little different. It's S-O-H-L-S. Again, text SOULS to 41444 to save lives. There are thousands of ways anyone can help, and there are seriously millions who are in great need of it. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Tracy. And if you would like to learn more about CareNet, please see Tracy afterwards at the table as well. Fran Amos is kind of our CareNet champion here in the congregation. So in the coming weeks and months, uh, grab her and ask any questions you would have. But we do have a wonderful opportunity, too, because we're going to have a testimony this morning uh, from our own Linda Smarr. Linda, when uh, her and Jean were living in Georgia, got involved with a ministry very similar to CareNet, and she's going to share a bit of the blessings that came to them and their family uh, as they were the presence of Christ out in their city. Thank you. Good morning. Um, I believe that um, establishing friendship is a good way to lead a person to Christ and to uh, present the gospel to them. I volunteered at a pregnancy resource center in Atlanta, much like CareNet. We provided free services um, to anyone who walked through our doors. Um, I served as a client mentor, one-on-one client mentor for Uh, about 15 years, five of those years I spent as a board member. Uh, I saw and worked with numerous women through the years, trying to give them love, support, and helping them understand options so they could make informed decisions about their baby. I often prayed with them and let them know that no matter their circumstance, God loved them. A few years ago, a beautiful young woman walked through our door. Her name was Sharman, and she and her husband had just arrived in Atlanta from Bangladesh. Georgia State University had brought her husband, Mafus, to the States to earn his PhD. They didn't know anyone in the Atlanta area except a few other people from Bangladesh who also came for educational purposes. She eagerly signed up for our one-on-one parenting, uh, childbirth, and pregnancy classes. So I was able to work one-on-one with her for throughout her pregnancy. After a few classes, she reached across the table one day and touched my hand, and she says, you know, Miss Linda, I think I like Christians. Um, Coming from a Muslim country, that really touched my heart. And I had explained to her in the very beginning that we were definitely a Christian organization. Uh, She eagerly signed up for classes and was just fascinated with everything she learned. She stated that in Bangladesh, they don't tell you anything about what to expect when you're pregnant, much less tell you how to take care of a baby. So she went to, came every single week for classes. 
When she went into labor, she called me. In the meantime, we had become pretty close and established a connection. You know, the day she touched my hand, I realized that there was something more there. There was a connection somehow. Went to the hospital while she was in labor. I spent the night with her, rubbing her back and going through delivery. And the next morning, a beautiful baby girl appeared, a beautiful gift from God, and I happened to be the first one to get to hold her. Uh, during the coming months, I visited with them often. Um, I answered a lot of questions, and we had become very attached, and our friendship had grown. Uh, Jean, my, and my, Jean, my husband, and I visited with them fairly often, and they came to our house fairly often with this beautiful little girl. Um, they even came to church with us a few times. They stated that they were raised Muslim, but they preferred not to practice any religion. Um, we became their American family, and Anandita considers us Mima and Grandpa. Sharman thinks of me as her second mother and often calls me for advice. Anandita is now almost five years old and is in preschool. She's bilingual. Her English is not 100% yet, but she uh, makes you understand what she wants you to know. In the meantime, Jean and Mafus established a bond, and they began coming to her home every Saturday afternoon um, to, just because we were family. Uh, Jean gave Mafus a Bible, so Mafus bought Jean a Koran, which was translated into English. Um, and Jean and Mafus spent hours every Saturday discussing the differences in, in the Koran and the Bible. Uh, after moving here, uh, we still maintain a very close relationship through texting, phone calls. Uh, Anandita is always very anxious to visit with Mima and Grandpa through FaceTime with her many stories and antics. Um, I really don't know what God's plan is for this family. Um, our prayer is that his word will overcome this Muslim background that they have, and they will finally accept him as their savior. Uh, they will always be family to us, and we will keep in close touch with them, hoping they will come to visit soon. And um, just pray for them uh, if, when you can. And um, by the way, Mafus just got his PhD in December, so they're very happy about that. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. It is so interesting how very practical life-on-life life service and blessing opens the door to share the good news of Jesus. So thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Linda. I, th I so appreciate the uh, opportunity this Sunday presents us with to kind of highlight our partnership with CareNet and to this very 
key, significant, beautiful ministry opportunity. What a way to be the presence of Christ, to be the tangible expression of Jesus' hospitality and care to those in need in our city. I also appreciate this. This Sunday reminds us of one of our core convictions as the people of God, that every human life is a wonder and of infinite value. Every person you encounter, no matter what language they speak, no matter how young or old they are, no matter how they smell or how they have their life put together, no matter whether you agree with their worldview or their lifestyle, each and every soul is someone for whom Christ died. They are someone for whom Jesus saw fit to give everything so that they might have the chance to be reconciled to God. And where we might see a mob of unwashed, obnoxious, frustrating, endlessly hopeless humanity, Jesus sees them with eyes of love and compassion. This is what we hear in the Gospel of Matthew And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. According to Jesus, every life is a treasure. Every life is sacred to him, and he wants to see all brought into the fold of his care He wants to see every person across time and space to be gathered in, to be brought into himself. And this is what we mean when we speak of life's sanctity. From our very beginning, God has set apart humanity for himself, that we might know his heart and his mind in intimate relationship with him. You go all the way back to Genesis. We read, then God said, let us make man, humanity, in our image, after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The capstone of all his works, God intended us to be his special representatives. We're empowered to extend his just and his kind rule through all creation. And we were brought into being with divine intention to be partners and friends with God. And when you read scripture, you come away with this incredibly high view of humanity even despite our fallenness. We may be intrinsically humble creatures, but we've been elevated by God's attention and grace. And thus we affirm, and I'm going to hear a quote from our Elam statement on sanctity of life, we affirm that all human life 
at whatever stage of development, from conception to death, at whatever socioeconomic status, and at whatever level of physical and intellectual capability is sacred. Because all human beings are created in God's image. Even when this image has been corrupted by our sin, every human being is still worthy of honor and respect. And there is nothing more valuable in all of creation than a human life. And we go on. As such, we work to defend the dignity, worth, and wonder of every human life, especially the vulnerable, as we labor to promote their welfare and seek their salvation by God's grace. Let me read that one more time. As such, we work to defend the dignity, worth, and wonder of every human life, especially the vulnerable, as we labor to promote their welfare and seek their salvation by God's grace. Those are our marching orders. But what motivates us is not merely humanity's kind of inherent value. What motivates us more than anything is who our God is. Why work to defend the dignity, worth, and wonder of every human life? Why labor to protect and promote their welfare? Well, it's so that we might be reflections of our Heavenly Father. It's so that we might be recognizable as His kids, as those who share His heartbeat. About a month ago, I was reading the Psalms in my own kind of time of private devotions, and I was in Psalm 146, and I was struck by how the psalmist, our kind of anonymous songwriter, describes Israel's God. And this is what he writes. He launches into this hymn of praise in Psalm 146, verse 5. He says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, Yahweh, his God. We hear God's name proclaimed, the name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush. God's name is spoken, and then the psalmist goes on to describe who they've discovered this God to be. And he begins in what feels like familiar territory in verse 6, who made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. He honors God as the creator. And then he goes on to say a word about his character, who keeps faith forever. God's faithfulness defines him. It seems that his distinguishing features are his steadfast love, his extraordinary loyalty, and his gracious devotion to those to whom he has decided to commit himself. But it prompts questions. To whom has the God of the universe committed himself? And how does he exercise this relentless, loving devotion? And then this is what we hear the psalmist say in verse 7. The Lord his God who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets prisoners free, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down, the Lord loves the righteous. 
The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but he brings the way of the wicked to ruin. Do you notice who has captured God's attention? On behalf of whom has he mustered himself? I feel like the most expected line in there is the Lord loves the righteous. But who else does he uphold as valuable? Who else does he identify as under his sacred trust? The oppressed, the hungry, the prisoner, the blind, the humiliated, those hunched over with age, the immigrant and the refugee, the widow, the foster child. Locked in his sight are the very people that society ignores and resents. Those that are regarded as burdens or takers or drains on the system. Individuals who don't make a significant contribution to society's progress. The eyesores and the undesirables. Maybe those that are scorned as hopelessly vulnerable, as an underclass of victims and easy targets who are unable to defend themselves or or change their fates. And then there's others like prisoners and addicts and prostitutes who polite company decry as beyond any reasonable mercy or pity or compassion. God doesn't approach these people with condemnation. He doesn't gloss over their existence. He doesn't launch into some kind of cost-benefit analysis to calculate their worth. He doesn't chide them to stand up for themselves or to better themselves by their own willpower or effort. He doesn't remind them that they're just experiencing the natural consequences of their or their parents' actions. Instead, God enlists himself as their defender and advocate, the protector and upholder of their cause. He says these are sacred individuals, no matter what, because he has chosen to make them in his image, because he has infused them with value and worth and made them the objects of his devotion and affection. And especially the vulnerable, especially the despised and the unwanted, he declares himself to be their papa bear. And Papa Bear is a grizzly, not to be trifled with. And if you don't believe me, let me read you some verses. And just hear the Papa Bear spirit. Proverbs 14.31, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, Or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Proverbs 22, 22 through 23. A little later in Proverbs, do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Psalm 68. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. 
God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Matthew 18. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. In 1 Thessalonians 4, you abstain from sexual immorality. Each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his sister or brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. God is saying, these are my beloved image bearers. Even if they're my wayward children, defend and protect their life, dignity, and worth. But I know the objection that rises up in our hearts. We say, I have my own life to lead. My own body to care for. My own aspirations and goals. My own loved ones to house and to feed and to invest in. I think of Cain's kind of impertinent question when God asks after the welfare of his brother Abel. He says, am I my brother's keeper? And remember, Cain's being more than self-focused. His selfishness proved destructive because he murdered his own brother to satisfy the desires of his bruised ego. And then we hear the roar of Papa Bear ring out in Genesis. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You remember how Jesus summarizes the full teaching of the Old Testament. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then he quotes Leviticus 19.18. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And when he says that, a lawyer pushes back against it. And he asks Jesus a lawyerly question. He says, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't give him a clear answer. Instead, he tells a parable. He's forcing the man to discern what it looked like to be a neighbor. To determine who in his community was in need of a neighbor to manifest for them God's costly and tenacious love. He sent the lawyer back to the heart of God to see others, especially the overlooked and the neglected, through God's eyes. And if we are going to be proponents of life sanctity in our generation, I think it requires a similar act of discernment. We have to ask whose worth and value are being questioned in our community. Who is left vulnerable without an advocate or a defender? Who is ignored, downplayed, dehumanized? All of those people are our neighbors. God's call 
encompasses all of them. Refugees, foster care kids, the addicted, the hungry, the homeless, the lonely, the developmentally disabled, the weird and the quirky, the people whose views you find objectionable. Jesus says, love that neighbor as your very self because I am the Lord, your Papa Bear, and theirs. The love you hand for me, channel in their direction for my glory. And let your love be costly as mine was. Do it in gratitude for the grace that I've purchased dearly on your behalf. And every generation, every congregation, every community of believers has to ask these questions, has to do this discernment process and has to put their faith to work. And I'll share with you an early illustration from the, of this kind of sanctity of life ethic among God's people. You go back to the early church and one of the things that we discover that was kind of historically new and we broached this topic a little bit during Advent, but it was brought to mind as I read Andy Stanley's Not In It to Win It, because he uses this illustration from the life of the early church in his book. Uh, excellent book if you uh, are looking for something to read. Why Choosing Sides Sidelines the Church. But he talks about how in the Greco-Roman world, it was neither uncommon nor illegal for parents to abandon newborns on the banks of the river, at the edge of the forest, kind of just beyond the protective walls of the village. Babies were left to starve, to freeze. They were vulnerable to wild animals. And this sort of exposure was not only legal in the Roman Empire, but in certain instances, it was considered an obligation. And they didn't consider it murder because the children didn't die of something the parents did, just because of something the parents didn't do. And, you know, there was a chance, there was a possibility that the goddesses of fate might intervene and the child might be spared. So the, the parents weren't culpable and this was something, this was a ritual practice that multiple generations, I mean, multiple cultures had practiced for generations, hundreds and thousands of years. And there was this whole kind of culture of detachment towards newborns in the ancient world. Whether a child was raised to maturity was just a a cost-benefit analysis that was made by the father. And it was just, this was self-evident to them. This is how things were in their culture. No one questioned it. And then we get to the early church. And all of a sudden, we find an early uh, church planting manual called the Didache, which translates to the teaching of the 12 apostles. And they're saying, hey, we're loving our neighbors. So don't commit abortion or kill anything that has been born. They start not only not engaging in this cultural practice, they start patrolling those liminal spaces to to rescue and raise these kids that were abandoned. 
They did it without any financial help from the state or local government. They did it despite the fact that food was scarce, their houses were small, and that every extra mouth put their own family's financial security at risk. And they did it without Jesus ever directly addressing this issue of abandoned babies. They did it without the Hebrew Scriptures or the New Testament explicitly requiring it. They did it because they knew God's heart and they discerned that this is what love requires. And after several hundred years of Christians patrolling those spaces and rescuing at great cost those kids, the tide changed. The culture no longer saw it as acceptable. It became no longer the practice to abandon kids. The, the sanctity of life that was a Christian value became infectious to the culture. So what does this look like? For them, it was finding abandoned babies and raising them as their own. What does it look like now? We know the heart of God. What do you discern that love requires of us today? To whom is God inviting us to be a neighbor? Let's think about that call this Sunday. Let's pray. Dear God, You are your brother's keeper. And we are humbled to say (laughs) that you've called us brothers. Lord, we did not deserve it. But in costly and sacrificial ways, you showed us the love of God. You didn't give up on us, though our hearts were hopelessly wicked. Instead, you gave everything to rescue and save us. Lord, may we see people with maybe even greater value than they see themselves. May we steward for them hope. May we be for them community. May at the end of our days, we all have testimonies like Gene and Linda of folks that not in our own strength but simply because your love is at work in us that we got to be the love and the presence the care and the hospitality of Jesus and may all these beloved individuals that you put in our paths experience your love make us bold to share your love And may they find an eternal home in your love. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen.